Health Matters with Karen Key. And a very good evening to you and welcome to this week's edition of Health Matters. On the show this evening, I'll be chatting with NGEN's Group CSI manager, Kanyisa Belfort, about the NGEN's Clever Kids campaign, which educates rural and township communities about safe handling and storage of paraffin. Malise van der Merwe and her husband, Johan, discovered that they were both carriers of a gene called HLAB27, which causes certain autoimmune disorders, and they finally had the answer as to why both their children were diagnosed with juvenile idiopathic arthritis, and she'll be sharing her story with us a little bit later. Well, with today being World Stroke Day, psychologist David Rosenstein will be joining us, and we'll be talking about the psychological outcomes associated with neurological disorders such as strokes. And then Julia Criscuola will be on the line and we'll be unpacking some of the myths and the facts surrounding erectile dysfunction. And just a reminder, if you need any information about something you hear on the show this evening or you miss a contact number or a website address, you can email me on healthmatters at safm.co.za or take a look at the Facebook page, Health Matters on SAFM. Well, that's the lineup for this evening. I do hope you'll stay with me and enjoy the show here on SAFM. The TV Licenses Kiosk will be visiting Gateway Mall Entrance 8 from 29 October until 3 November. Our friendly staff will assist you with all your license inquiries and accept payments via cash, debit or credit card. We also have an exciting competition where you can win a 32-inch LCD TV for free. So, for quick and convenient service with your household or business TV license, pop into Gateway Mall from 29 October until 3 November. See you there. TV Licenses, making a difference. Health Matters with Karen Key. Well, the NGEN's Clever Kids campaign was launched five years ago, and over the last three years, it's reached more than 79,999 learners in 190 schools, located in areas where the household use of paraffin is widespread and paraffin-related accidents are extremely common. Well, joining me this evening is Kanyisa Belfort, NGEN's Group CSI Manager. Kanyisa, welcome back to the show. It's been a while. I know. It has been a while. Thank you, Karen, and thank you for the listeners. Well, the last time we spoke, we were talking about driver wellness. You were making sure that all the truck drivers on the roads were safe and keeping <laughs> us safe by being safe themselves. And now you're looking at children and communities as far as this is one of those things that we read about, we hear about all these dreadful accidents and engineers going out of their way to make a difference here. Well, we, 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 we just feel that it is important for us to get involved as the market share leader also in the um, um, distribution and production of paraffin. We started this campaign, as you had in your introduction, five years ago, and we've always been busy every year uh, from May up until this time of the year. We get busy educating young people in uh, schools, especially in rural areas and peri-urban areas, uh, because we really just feel it's imperative that you empower these young minds that often are the caregivers in their own homes, about how to care and store uh, paraffin in a safe way. I think that is a very big factor that a lot of people probably wouldn't realize is that you're targeting 9 to 13-year-olds. And as you say in some of the information I've been reading, that during the day, those children at that age, 9 to 13, are often the primary caregivers of the younger siblings. It is a reality, especially in townships and also in rural areas, because parents are out working in our own homes as domestic workers. And they come back from school, they have to fetch a little one from a nearby crash, or the other little sibling was in school with them. And they get home and they have to prepare food, and they have to get the, 
the dinner or supper going at home before the parents arrive. And, and that is the reality for most 9 to 13 year olds. They really are like adults. And therefore, we felt it's imperative that we educate them than parents most of the time. Now, what are you doing is you're actually not sitting them down and just telling them this. You're making the whole thing, well, for children that age, it has to be fun. So it's more of an edutainment rather than educational road trip that you do. Yes, it is. Uh, we uh, have all these uh, um, drama in schools that really just uh, lay all the the realities of where, what happens when you arrive at home and um, what do you do when you have to light up the stove what do you do when you have used the paraffin? What happens when you go buy paraffin? I mean, the message is really about how do you store it safely? How do we use it safely in the way that you don't use cups and mugs uh, to put it in stoves, that you use the proper funnel, which we give as a giveaway at the end of the campaign. So it's all done in a form of entertainment by experienced actors. Some of them are on television at the moment, and I think that's also a draw card. And, and, and that also makes the message so much more powerful because they listen to people that they see. Andrea is just a star in the show. And, um, and, and there is, that's the way you can, you can teach kids. And I think part of the campaign, there's a jingle that really reinforces the message. And that's what we hear every time at the end of the campaign when they walk away. You can hear them singing and the teachers joining in as well. That's wonderful to get that message across because I think we read a lot in the papers where there's some unfortunate incidents where children are drinking paraffin mainly because it's being stored in cool drink bottles, for example. Yes, I think for many, many years we, we used to have these campaigns targeting more adult population mm. at uh, taxi ranks. And I think the research that was done by Paraffin Safety Association and, and Child Safe at Red Cross Children's Hospital made us more aware that actually... Um, 20, only 20% of the accidents are caused by paraffin. It's usually the handling and where it is mm. stored that often, because the informal settlements I don't have the infrastructure that you and I have where we can store it in the broom cupboard away from kids, that often we put it behind uh, a curtain or under the table and we think that it's safer there. And then the little ones crawl and then they see this is clear, it looks like cool drink, and then they drink it. And I think what complicates the situation is the fact that when people in, in, in rural areas and townships go to buy paraffin, they use cold drink bottles, and that is the reality that we have, and often without leads. So therefore, it makes it easy for the little people. When they crawl, they see it, they drink it. And um, so that, that's, that's part of the message, that it's about labeling, it's about storing it safe, it's about keeping in a tight bottle and then put it high up so that it's away from the reach of, of children. I was reading that some research that was commissioned by NGEN in 2011, it said that awareness has improved from 24% to 90% and changed the behavior of more than 80% of participants. That's an incredible success rate. It is huge. I mean, we, we knew that there is a problem, but I mean, the extent of the problem we, was just mind-boggling for us in the sense that when we did that, I mean, we literally sent people before the campaign to about 240 households. Of that 79,000 that you talk about, 240, um, you know, were part of that sample. You know, the researchers physically went to their homes to see how it was stored and whether kids knew about even how it looks like, what it was used for, how you use it and where you store it. And then literally six to eight weeks later, they went back to do the same. And that's how we got to that result. We are doing the same now. 
we had a pre-study that um, all the schools that participated, you know, the kids that participated in the program filled out the questionnaire. And then six weeks later, we are doing the post-research as well. And already indications, are, are, I suspect, are going to be very similar to that, which is really frightening that, um, you know, children that um, are caregivers at the moment that actually don't even know the, the, the place where to store it. And some of them actually don't even know the danger that is associated with paraffin. So we, we continue to do this because we realize that it is imperative that we play our corporate responsibility role and also that um, in the areas where we have the high consumers, that is exactly where the most problems are because research that was done by the Paraffin Safety Association of Southern Africa as well indicated that there was a correlation between where the high consumers are and obviously the incidences of ingestion of paraffin and also the fires that you see. The, the interesting part as well is that this <coughs> campaign also supports the life orientation curriculum of the Department of Basic Education. So, I mean, that in itself is really good. Yeah, well, that is the reason that when after the campaign, during the campaign, actually, we bring uh, with us posters that all the messages up around Parafina, all the classrooms and all the 100 schools that we are targeting this year are left with posters around the message to reinforce it. And also we have a booklet that is going to be supporting that life orientation lesson as well so that they can keep it in their own schools and use it for other grades as well. So um, so we, we it was really good for us to realize that we're not just doing something that is out of the ordinary, but it was more aligned to the life orientation curriculum of the Department of Education. And slightly to the side of all of that, I noticed on your NGEN website today, I was having a look, and I see you've actually gone and painted all this, well, not all of them, but a lot of spaza shops with all the messages about paraffin safety as well. Yes, the same message is on the spaza shops uh, that are spread across the country. Uh, we have some lovely blue spaza shops mm. with the same message that is on the posters. So it's really just reinforcing the campaign to those areas that we are not reaching, especially in the peri-urban areas. Because I think the campaign at the moment is really going out to, to rural areas and the further away townships uh, where we kick-started in, in Soshangove, for example, in Gauteng. And, and then we proceeded to Free State, KZN. And now the campaign is coming to an end on the 1st of, of November in Cape Town. And already we've exceeded the, um, the target of 30,000 learners um, for this year. Uh, the last time I checked the numbers before they even arrived in the Western Cape, we were already on 32,000 young people that were already exposed to the campaign. So I think that for us is, is reassuring to know that there are additional 30,000 young people, more than 100,000 now, that know it and they have it, and also the teachers are also empowered to continue with the campaign in their schools through the Ecucomic reader that we leave behind that complicates complements the campaign. With results like this coming out of this work that you do, Kanisa, it must be a very re- rewarding job you have. Well, at, at, you know, when you get the research, it really sort of gives you, because often uh, it gives you the confidence that what you are doing is right. Mm. Because over, you know, you, you do these interventions, you get involved because you're a corporate and people look at you like, oh, yeah, 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 you're doing it. Yeah. <laughs> but I think, um, you know, I think the impact is always paramount to say, are we really making the difference that we think mm. we should be and making? And it looks like you and are. Yeah, so when you get those, that, that research that has been done independently, it gives you that confidence even to continue to say we still have a bigger responsibility out there, we still have a bigger role to play uh, to continue to educate young people.
And that gives us confidence to continue in this space, really. Can you say, if people are wanting to find out more about the Clever Kids campaign, is there any website or information that they can go and find anywhere on the, on the internet? I think with, with, with the Engine uh, website, www.engine.co.za, or they can call our office just to find out a little bit because we are now starting to source the schools for the 2014 campaign. Oh, right. Obviously, okay. we are being guided by the statistics that we have from Barasin Safety Association, as, as I said. So we are now targeting Limpopo, which also seems to be the area where we have Kaihas consumers and also incidences as well. And, um, you know, and other areas, of course. I mean, Nampopo is not the only area. There's going to be others in Northern Cape, in Pumalanga, for next year. So people can call our office on 021-403-4771, and they can speak to, um, to me, basically, and then I can give them some information. But we work very closely with the Department of Education because schools are their territory. We communicate with them. We get permissions from them much earlier that's what we are busy doing at the moment. We are doing our list so that by before the schools close at the end of the year, by early next year we have scheduled, um, you know, um, um, campaigns in their respective schools so that they can in time inform the school principals because sometimes we find that the challenges are the delays between the message from the department to, to the district, from the district to the, um, to the, to the participating schools. So, but we've become smarter now that once we've worked with the department, we take it upon ourselves to, to take those memos ourselves to the respective schools so that we can also introduce ourselves because the schools and the district officials are a very key part in the success of this campaign. Kanisa, you are doing a marvellous job. A long may you continue. And thank you so very much indeed for your time this evening. It's lovely talking to you again. Thank you so much, Karen. I would have loved to be there with you at yes. the studio, but I'm out in Gauteng. Yes, and, you, uh, thank you so left much me at the, the last minute. Time. I was we're hoping to see you in here tonight, but uh, glad we could still catch up on the phone. Yes, no, we'll catch up. I mean, there's some exciting things about around the driver wellness now. Oh, great. Okay, well, I look forward to chatting you more about that. Thank you so much. Thanks, Kanisa. Good Bye. night. Bye-bye. Kanisa Belfour is NGEN's Group CSI Manager, and we were talking there about the NGEN's Clever Kids campaign. If you want more information, you can have a look at the website. It's www.ngen.co.za. Or if you'd like to have a word with Kanisa, <coughs> excuse me, about possibly having your school involved in this campaign, you can call Kanisa on 021-403-403. 4771 021-403-4771. Health Matters with Karen Key. Well, after struggling for a diagnosis, Marlisa and Johan van der Merwe's two teenage children were eventually diagnosed with juvenile idiopathic arthritis. They then realized that there must be a genetic connection, and they were both tested and discovered that they both carried a gene called HLAB27, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, which causes certain autoimmune disorders. But there is a light at the end of this tunnel, but I'll let Marlisa tell you all about that. Marlisa, good evening. Welcome to the show. Corinne, hi. Well, you know, I'm reading through the story. I mean, it sounds like you and Johan were almost at your wits end and desperate when Charles, who was very young, a young teenager at the time, literally became bedbound. He couldn't move at one point. Yes, literally overnight as a 14-year-old boy, um, went uh, to a church camp and came back and fell very ill. And literally in two weeks, our life fell apart. He wasn't able to walk and um, he went blind in his right eye. 
And But this is the problem, though, with something like this, is that because they're young, the children, the doctors almost overlook the possibility that it could be this condition because you always think of anything to do with arthritis, you must be getting on in sort of middle age sort of time. Yes. Um, autoimmune, especially juvenile idiopathic arthritis, is uh, one of the fastest autoimmune disease currently in the world. And in South Africa, um, it's still very undiagnosed. So when a child falls ill... They'll start by saying it must be flu symptoms or even stress, depression. So definitely they, they wouldn't start with the diagnosis of autoimmune. So I was reading some statistics and it said it's estimated that one in every 1,000 children suffers from this condition. That's actually quite an alarming statistic because that okay. means there's a lot of children out there with this. Yes, uh, a lot of children. Um, and, you know, they started off by complaining of um, growing pains in their, or, or complaining mm. of pains in their legs. And that's one of the symptoms um, of the start of um, juvenile arthritis. But then Charles was still in, in the stages where he wasn't better yet, but he was on, I think, antibiotics and was having a little bit of temporary relief with that. When your daughter, when Danae, I think she was 12 at the time, was she, was she younger than that, when she started showing the same symptoms? Yes. Um, Charles was, unfortunately, at the stage when Charles was diagnosed, the doctors actually didn't know what he had. So we eventually ended up by a doctor that said that she can treat his autoimmune with um, high dosages of antibiotics. And then Dornay started falling ill. We never, in our wildest dreams, imagined that she would have the same disease. And But they diagnosed her a whole lot quicker, though. They did. They did. The symptoms of the lower backache, the pains in the legs, when we eventually took her to the right doctor, who's actually a pediatric rheumatologist, she immediately said um, it's autoimmune. And what made you and Johan go and have your cells tested? The fact that both our children have the disease may, was alarming to us. So one of us, surely we thought one of us had to carry the gene. It is genetic. But we never thought both of us would be carrying the same gene. That's, that's rather unusual that you both would have been. Yes, both of us carry it. It's very unusual. Now, the one thing I just need to, for listeners to be aware of is that if you are a carrier of, of any autoimmune condition, it doesn't necessarily, or even if you have an autoimmune condition, it doesn't necessarily mean that your children are going to get it. Yes. And I it think that is what scares a lot of people. You know, if they have something, am I going to pass this on to my children? There, there is a parent, I would imagine, a very a slight chance, but it's not a given. It's not, well, you have it, so definitely your children are going to have it. Yes, it's, it's not a given. One, you, I could be carrying the gene and another person could be, or they both of them could, um, but if you carry HLB27 gene, your chances of, of developing an autoimmune disease is just so much higher. Oh, so, and that would go across the board, so that HLA, I, I'm a, I kept calling it HLAB20, I don't know how you, what, how, what, how do you say this, Molly? HLBA27. HLBA, oh, the B, oh, I had it AB, so it's HLBA27. Okay. Now, if you have that, is that is that linked to the... Um, juvenile idiopathic arthritis, or yes. is that for any autoimmune disease? Uh, there's quite a few, but the, the biggest stats comes up that it's linked to a disease called ankylosing spondylitis, yes. which Shoal was initially diagnosed with. So just patients that carry this gene, when you get tested, they just, and you have symptoms of um, lower backache or, or you get sick, your chances of developing autoimmune disease is so much higher. Now, is this, does, did it make a big difference in the outcome for your children, the fact that Donay was diagnosed so much quicker than her brother? Definitely. Shoal has permanent uh, damage in oh, does he? most of his joints, yes. He's got permanent hip damage. Um, the doctor actually said before 22, Shoal might stand a chance of having a hip replacement. 
So the, the early diagnosis and treatment at an early stage are critical? Yes, critical, absolutely. Do you find, I mean, this, how long ago did all this happen now? This was a couple of years ago when Charles first started with these symptoms. 2010. So it wasn't all that long ago. No, it wasn't all that long ago. And I'm just wondering if doctors are becoming more and more aware of the fact that children are also susceptible to this condition. In South Africa, no. Around the world, there are actually autoimmune centers in each state. There's a juvenile arthritis center in almost each state in the state. But in South Africa, we are still very behind when it comes to diagnosing autoimmune now, there is, as I mentioned, light at the end of the tunnel. And Charles has, I mean, I read some things that he, was, he, he said, and he said his life pretty much has been a life-changing experience for him. Um, he's now on biologics. Yes, he's on the biologic. Um, it did literally change his life. Charles was in pain 24-7. There were days when we had to feed him, bath him, dress him. Um, he actually said he doesn't know what a life without pain is anymore. You can't remember what that's like. So... When he started the biologic, we were told, look, he could be on it for six months before it makes any difference, and he can also reject it. So it was literally the day when he got administered, we stood next to his bed and said to him, do you feel any pain? And Shoal was one of the fortunate ones where he took to it, and um, he's doing very well with little pain. It's also one of those things with biologics as well. It's, it's in inverted commas, a miracle drug, but it's not for everybody. It's not for everyone. Some people do reject it. Um, so it just depends. It's, it's, a, it's a high risk. I'm also surprised when I read that he was so young and taking this because I've spoken to other people who are taking biologics, but they're a lot older than he is. So I was quite surprised to read that at his age that they were putting him on this and that he was doing so incredibly well on it. Yes. The doctor, at the first age, as he said to us, he's not going to put you on biologics. We're going to do the normal treatment, the chemotherapy, um, and, and so forth. But biologics would literally be our last line of medication. But Shoal had a severe relapse in 20, 2011, or 20, sorry, 2012, where he couldn't walk anymore. And the doctor said, we have to try biologics. And Shoal did take to it. He was very young. The doctor was very reluctant. But we had no choice. It was either try the biologic or Shoal would have a, a disability soon. And Donna, is she on that as well now? Or how is she doing? Um, Donna's not doing that well at the moment. She is struggling. She's got eight joints affected at the moment. So she is, we've just applied for biologics for her as well. She'll also be going on to a biologic very soon. Now, this is another thing. When you say you applied for the biologics, this is unfortunately one of those things that we have a problem with here in South Africa as well, is that the medical aids are a little bit skittish when it comes to paying for this because it's not the cheapest treatment out there. No, it's not the cheapest treatment, and, and it's quite a big thing to apply with SORA for um, the biologic. They literally have, you have to try in South Africa the routine um, chemo drugs um, for six months at least before they would even reconsider putting you onto a biologic unless you adhere to a few steps where the patient's showing disability, then they could get it. But the medical aides don't always pay for it. That's, that's the problem. And as, you know, as we've discussed, in some cases, like in Shoal's case, it literally changed his life. Yes, it changed Shoal's life. I mean, he's, he was a normal boy for, since he got Humira. It does come with some side effects, but I mean, for, we had no choice. Shoal um, can kick a ball again. I couldn't, there was a stage when he was so ill that I couldn't, he couldn't walk. He was in, in constant pain with Humira. He can run around again. He, he can literally do some things that he couldn't do before. And he's writing a trick at the moment, is he? 
writing. So is it right bank smack in the middle of exams now? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't envy him that at all. How does this actually affect his social life now? I mean, he must be out and about again like, an, like a normal teenager. Yes, he is. Um, I think he wants to make up for a few years where um, he couldn't do much. Uh, he had to give us sport. There was a lot, lot of things that Shaw had to compromise in terms of social life. He was always the sick one for, for a while. But he's trying to make up for that. So he's out and about and doing the normal 18-year-old things. This must have had quite an impact on the family, Molly's, both the children being ill for so long. Oh, yes. It's definitely changed our lives. Um, I think we're both older by 20 years. Um, and uh, emotionally, it, it, it's, it's very traumatising to see your child in pain for 24-7, and there's nothing you can do. Mm, that's the worst part, I think. Yes. The morphine that they put them on only lasts for six, seven hours, and the pain is back twice, twice as bad. And Donna, you said she's hoping to go onto these biologics quite soon. So and how, how debilitating is it for her at the moment? Is she able to move around still? She's in a brace, in a foot brace at the moment. She's affected her one foot. We really struggle with the one left foot of her. She's um, struggling to walk, but uh, we're hoping that the biologics will be approved very soon. I think the other thing, though, as well, with something like this, and I think this goes along with a number of different autoimmune conditions, is that there's nothing actually visible to a certain degree, and people think you're making it up half the time. Yes, Karen, that's, that's the most important thing that people don't understand about um, these diseases. They call it invisible disease. Mm. So a lot of time people would go, but they look fine. Um, are you sure they're that sick? <laughs> and it's true. It is invisible. You, you don't know what's happening inside. And a lot of times when they eventually go to a doctor, they've got such bad joint damage that it's almost too late for them. And are you talking about this a lot more, obviously, now? I mean, you, you're getting the word out there. I think it, it comes down to people like yourself when you've been in that situation. It's almost up to people like you to go out there and say, look, you know, this is the situation. This is what it was, and this is how we got to where we are now. And possibly making more people aware of the condition, of the fact that it needs to be diagnosed a whole lot earlier, and the fact that there is something, you know, if he's telling people there's something wrong with your child, there is something wrong with your child. You're not making this up. Oh, yes. Um, look, you get all sorts. You get people saying, they don't look sick. Or maybe she's a bit paranoid. Um, I'm sure with herbal, herbal stuff, you can fix things. Yes, you're not making it up. I'm definitely out there to bring awareness to this disease, especially for the parents out there. So many times I speak to mom saying that um, one, one night she'll take her daughter out um, and she'll dance around and be fine. And literally by 12 o'clock, that pain sets in. And the next day when the friends phone, sorry, um, my daughter's sick, but she looked fine. It, it is. It's a, it's a disease that can literally, within a few hours, change dramatically and set their child back in pain. It's, it's like when I speak to people who have um, possibly depression and you know, people will come up to them and say, well, oh, just pull yourself together, as if you can just fix it now. You know, it, it's the same kind of thing. Yes. You know, get your mind right. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> You're not that sure you'll be fine. It fascinates me until they end up in the same position and then they'll know why you said what you said or did what you did. Yes. Now, you, this, this AbbVie is this, the pharmaceutical company that actually does the, the biologics and they have this whole awareness campaign that they're doing, what they've been doing now, I think in October, the 12th of October, I think was World Arthritis Day. Yes. And um, they have this global awareness campaign called Join the Fight Against Autoimmune Diseases. And that's really all about raising awareness and, and also destroying some of the myths around autoimmune diseases and especially things like arthritis. Yes, uh, they started this campaign for the patients. Um, 
see how they, a lot of them really struggle in terms of bringing awareness out there. So the campaign just is to support the patients and bringing awareness to the general public that if you have an employee with arthritis or you have a student with it, this is what it's all about. They are really sick. They aren't just pretending. And these are the symptoms that you can look out for. So that when you now tell people, I have autoimmune, they can relate and go, okay, I've heard of it. Where before, if you say to anyone, I've got autoimmune disease, even now, what is it? I've never heard of it before. Mm. I know, it's, it's, it's one of those very awkward, uh, difficult things to, to get people to understand. But people like yourself getting the word out there, Marlies, you're doing a fabulous job. And I'm so pleased that Charles is doing so much better. And I hope that Donay will be joining him in doing so much better very soon. Thanks, Brian. I'm sure they will, she'll be fine soon. And good luck to uh, Charles with his matric exams. Gosh, thank you. Charles, <laughs> I, I always just say to parents, what, 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 what class are you writing now? Are you writing matric yourself? <laughs> Are you busy studying, Molly? So are you feeling like you're writing exams on his behalf? Unfortunately, I'm in Durban and, and Shoal is in Johannesburg. So, oh, oh gosh, um, it's even worse. He has to do it all by himself. Oh, dear. He, I think he's been through so many trials before in his life that this is just another obstacle that he has to overcome. He's probably a very strong young man. Is. through all of that. Marlies, thank you very much indeed for joining me on the show this evening. Thank you. I was chatting there with Marlies van der Merwe. She's the mother of Charles and Danae. And for more information on biologics, you can take a look at her website. It's www.abvie.com. And that's A-B-B-V-I-E, abvie.com. Health Matters with Karen Key. Well, today is World Stroke Day, and joining me this evening is psychologist David Rosenstein. And we're going to be talking about the psychological outcomes associated with neurological disorders, such as strokes. David, good evening. Welcome to the show. It's been a while. It has been a while. Yeah, good evening, and evening to your listeners. World Stroke Day. I've spoken quite a bit about World Stroke Day and all the different things about we've talked about using different kinds of technology to assist people when they have had a stroke. But we haven't actually touched on the psychological outcomes, and I'm sure those are very, very important. Would you like to just tell us what those outcomes are? Um, yeah, actually, there's a number of them. Um, it depends on the nature of the stroke. It can be a change in personality. Um, if we're looking at sort of a, a frontal lobe stroke, um, yeah, and there's a number of other what we call cognitive outcomes, so effects to a person's thinking. And that could be uh, difficulties with language, uh, language comprehension, being able to speak. Um, it could also be what we call spatial reasoning, so the ability to um, plan things in one's mind, to also um, arrange things, objects, um, visual objects. Um, also, a person may present with a number of uh, memory difficulties as well related to the stroke. So it's actually quite diverse um, and broad. Um, strokes tend to often have quite an individual nature, but there are some sort of overall commonalities between uh, individuals and their strokes. Does it, doesn't, it stroke. af- doesn't affect your intelligence at any point? This is, I think, one of those things we need to clear up here. Does it? I don't think it does, does it? Uh, yeah, not specifically. Um, we don't really look at it in that, in that way. No, it's just that I've had, had people on the show who said, well, you know, if you've had a stroke, you obviously it's affected your mental ability and a lot of people are saying well actually no but it's affecting other things but you can still understand in your own way what's going on yeah i mean we we would say it doesn't really affect your mental ability in terms of uh, intelligence but uh, it may affect uh, specific areas of thinking Mm. yeah yeah so you kind of know what's going on uh, most of the time but uh, for example with some of the uh, language impairments um, you know a person may struggle to uh, like articulate something, uh, be able to sort of like kind of 
know in their mind what they want to say, but they're unable to say it. Or what happens is they sort of have what we call a receptive problem, where someone's talking and they can't really understand that they can't make sense of language. It must um, be very frustrating. Extremely frustrating, yeah. I mean, that, and that's sort of... Uh, I mean, w- with the work we do, um, you know, there's sort of these... Uh, you know, a lot of anxiety, a lot of other psychological difficulties um, arise from, you know, the, sort of the, the effects of a stroke or sort of the fallout of having a stroke. And it's not only the, the, the patient who is frustrated. I'm sure their family must be as equally frustrated. Yeah, very much so, yeah. So it's a much bigger problem than just the person who's had the stroke. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, uh, I mean, it affects so many areas of an individual's life. Uh, family, also your ability to work. Uh, socialize, you know, sort of friends, hobbies, all that kind of thing uh, can be massively uh, affected. Now, you run a practice here in Cape Town called Neuropsych Consulting, and one of the things you do is called hypothesis testing. Could you just explain what hypothesis testing is all about? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so it's part of something we do, uh, which is neuropsychological uh, testing, neuropsychological assessments. And the hypothesis testing is a way in which we conduct those assessments. So we have a patient that would come to the practice or someone who's had a stroke. And they may, it may have been a number of days after the stroke. They may have seen a neurologist or it could be a number of weeks or months. And the hypothesis is sort of an idea we have about the effect the stroke has had on a person. Um, so it's sort of a, an idea, and we then test that idea. So if we get a, a referral letter from a neurologist saying they have this specific kind of stroke, we would uh, conduct the testing with certain assumptions in mind. Okay, okay, how does this kind of stroke affect this person? What may we be looking for? And then what kind of, uh, how may it affect their functioning, you know, at work, in their lives, and things like that. So it's driven by that sort of idea, and it helps us to focus in on some of the effects that a stroke may have on a person. Then I'm sure in, in the same light that also ab- enables you to make recommendations regarding the type of treatment or assistance that they would need. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. I mean, it directs us definitely in terms of that. And it's often, I mean, the, the assistance is multidisciplinary, and we have to provide quite a comprehensive report, you know, if it's going to an OT or some other rehabilitative uh, process or person. Yeah, so, I mean, it's quite a broad, yeah. One of, a stroke is one of those things where do you ever know exactly if and when somebody would recover certain aspects of what they've lost when they've had the stroke? Yeah, um, you can make some uh, sort of estimations about recovery. Um, so what we do is we do something called stroke tracking. Mm. So we sort of have an initial assessment, and that gives us a, a baseline, how much this person's been affected. And also in the kind of stroke a person has, you can, in general, because um, there's quite a lot of research in strokes, um, you can make some estimation on how much that person may recover. If you know a lot about the stroke, it kind of helps as well. And then you can track it. So um, certain uh, strokes like um, the ischemic strokes, they take slightly longer um, in terms of recovery, and you can track that. And if you notice that the person's making progress quite quickly over a number of uh, months or weeks, uh, that's generally what we call prognostically a good picture. So we, we can kind of see that this person's going to do quite well. The thing that people, I think, I always like to give people hope. The thing is that if somebody's had a stroke in your family, don't think, well, that's it. There, there is something that you can do, not necessarily that the person will recover fully, although they might, but yeah. they, they could improve in certain aspects of what is now impaired. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, the, the big thing with strokes is prevention. Um, mm. And after prevention, it's sort of early intervention. And uh, the earlier a person intervenes and manages it, you know, the better the outcome is. And definitely, I mean, the brain is a is, the, is an, a very adaptable organ, and uh, it's quite flexible to able to lay down new networks and repair itself. I mean, often with a stroke, you don't have a, a sort of 100% recovery, but you can have quite significant recovery. I mean, early intervention is definitely key. Now, as a psychologist, um, how would you treat them once if they've got literally to the point where that's where they're going to get to? They're not going to get any better than that. Would they then require counselling afterwards, after that? Yeah, a person may, and also the family as well, in helping the person to manage through the stroke. Um, So a lot of the, if it's the therapy side, so I I work a lot with the, I'm a clinical psychologist and my partner, uh, she's a sort of a a specialist in neuropsychological uh, testing. So it's to help the person with adjustments to the, the effects that the stroke has. And uh, then we may uh, provide some input on the actual neurological rehabilitation side as well, um, on some of the psychological effects the stroke has. And even sometimes a little bit around language and, you know, helping the person to find alternative adaptive, um, you know, uh, behaviors and things for their environment. And we might work very closely with other, um, you know, sort of professionals like a, a speech and hearing therapist, um, well, speech therapist or a occupational therapist as well, and neurologists. So there is a lot of help out there. There is a lot of help, yeah. Um, there are quite a few people that do specialize in this area. I mean, strokes are unfortunately very common. Um, I mean, in terms of South Africa, I think they... Up there with uh, heart disease, I think it's the third largest contributor to um, morbidity and mortality, unfortunately. And we're just talking more a little bit about what you do in your practice as well. We're talking here about strokes, but you also deal with people who suffer with de- degenerative disorders like dementia, and Parkinson's, and multiple sclerosis, those kinds of, of conditions as well. We do, yeah. I mean, our assessments are quite broad. So, um, yeah, we do all sorts of uh, neurological conditions. We work quite closely with a number of neurologists and and other professionals who would refer for those sort of degenerative disorders, yeah. We also do quite a lot of work around epilepsy. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay, so you basically what you're you're tracking is cognitive functioning in those conditions. Exactly, yeah. There's a, there's a great need for something like this, David, because as you mentioned, you know, we're right up there with the, the high numbers of strokes. And as you said as well, one of the big things is prevention. Things like high cholesterol and high blood pressure and all of those things are adding to the high level of strokes we have here. That's right, yeah. So we need to take a little bit more care about those sort of things or have them tested a little more frequently. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, uh, you know, if you check your cholesterol, um, you know, looking after your lifestyle, mm. uh, definitely. Things like smoking and drinking, those are massive contributors to strokes. Um, you know, also poor eating, um, not, you know, not exercising enough. All those things are things that a person um, can try and manage. And if there's a history as well in the family, I mean, that's another aspect as well. So there's a little bit of research around some sort of genetic susceptibility, but that 
Yeah, that's still out there, I suppose. Yeah, I think it's almost with everything. You know, the first question is, is you know, if my grandmother or my mother had this, am I likely to get it? And, you know, the, I always say there's yeah. possibly a slight chance. It's not a given, but, you know, maybe you should just take better care of yourself then. No, that's actually, yeah, that's you know, it. <laughs> it's the same with cancer yeah. and all those sorts of things. You know, you, 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 if you have it in the family, go and get yourself checked more often or yeah. don't just leave it and if you think, don't think about it, it might just not ever happen. Rather just find out for sure. Yeah, I think, yeah, no, definitely. Um, I think a lot of people would sort of, there's this belief, you know, it's not going to happen to me. Mm. Um, sort of call it the just world belief, you know, it's going to happen to someone else. And also we kind of put things aside and don't really want to look at it. Um, it kind of gives you that sense that it's not going to happen. But, it, I mean, if you do have a, a history of uh, strokes and that in your family, it is worth being more mindful and, and you know, going for regular uh, checkups or at least around your, your heart and well-being, you know, your sort of physical functioning preventatively. You mentioned right at the very beginning that one of the possible effects of a stroke is a change in behavior. Could you just possibly give families listening out there who might have a family member who's had a stroke and has had some um, behavioral changes the yeah. best way to deal with that in the home because it must be very difficult? Yeah, that's one of, probably one of the most difficult aspects of strokes. And also for families, uh, one of the more you know, unfortunately, disturbing aspects of, of a stroke. And it's often the strokes that affect uh, the frontal areas of the brain. We sort of call it the frontal lobes. And um, you can see quite large uh, personality changes often. Um, sometimes it can be slightly subtle. It depends how, how, I suppose, big or, or destructive the stroke has been for the person. And, um, you know, it's sort of, say, a person was quite placid and goal-directed, um, they would plan ahead. Uh, they were maybe quite um, empathic. And, and, and what you find with some strokes that that person may, I mean, this is just an example, but you may find that they're the opposite of that. Other per- persons may be more boisterous, inappropriate, impulsive. Um, and, and that can, you know, what happens with the strokes that affect certain areas of the brain uh, that help us to regulate, um, you know, emotional functions, planning ahead impulsivity and those all affect a person's personality and um yeah it's very hard for a family um and it's worth um you know getting as much support as you can um sort of um increasing awareness both of the patient and the family uh finding ways to cope with that change because often for the person as well um some have insight into that they're aware that there's sort of this shift Mm. but for many they're not really aware of it um, you know, it's difficult to reflect on something like that. So they often don't see the profound change that the, the family sees. So, I mean, it it's, can be really important to kind of bring that to bear, you know, to sort of have the family reflect on that and also that individual to realize that there has been this shift and change and then to try and work on that and find possi- ways and, to adapt. And, and possibly get to speak to a professional who could possibly help to, yeah. to make your journey with this with your family member a lot easier. David, thank you so much for joining me on the show tonight and giving us some insight into the work that you do. Thank you very much indeed yeah. for your time. Pleasure. It's uh, great to be on your show. I hope it's helped a lot of people. Thank so. you very much. I'm sure it has. Great. Thanks, David. Good okay. night. Take care. Clinical psychologist David Rosenstein runs a psychology practice in Cape Town called Neuropsych Consulting that focuses primarily on the psychological outcomes associated with neurological disorders. For more information, you can take a look at the website. It's www.neuropsych-consulting.com or you can call the practice on 021-433-1721. 021-433-1721. Health Matters with Karen Key.
I'm joined on the line this evening by Julia Criscuolo, and she's Life of Farmers pharmacist. And we're going to be talking about something that is sometimes a bit of a difficult topic for men to discuss, but it's erectile dysfunction. And we're going to be talking about the myths and the facts surrounding that. Julia, good evening. Welcome back to the show. Hi, Corin. Good to be with you again. So let's start off, and I'm sure everybody by now knows exactly what ED or erectile dysfunction is, but maybe just explain it for those who aren't quite sure. Sure, Corin. As you very rightly said, it, it is one of those words um, that really, yeah, do um, put a whole a spoke in relationships and really affect, you know, men's sexuality. So basically, impotence or erectile dysfunction is really a condition where a man either has a problem getting an erection or otherwise a difficulty in actually maintaining one. So as you can imagine, it just interferes with sexual activity and then obviously it's going to have an impact on the man's self-esteem, on his confidence, and eventually on the relationship as well. So it is something that needs attention, needs to be sorted out, and actually can often be linked to many other conditions, which I'm sure we'll talk about. Well, that, that is where I was going to go next, because... You know, sometimes people think, well, it's, that's just what the problem is. That's all it is. But it's mm. not. It, it's now being linked to heart problems. Exactly. And actually, um, Dr. McCullough see, talks about it as the canary in your trousers. Because remember the old days when oh, the miners yes. used to mm. take the canary down to, to underground. And it would be the, um, the canary would pick up if there was any toxic fumes around. And then alert the miners that there was danger. So it's the same thing with erectile dysfunction, that it is often a first sign that there could be underlying heart disease because with the fine capillaries and the blood vessels in the penis, um, those often get affected first when there's atherosclerosis or some kind of cardiovascular disease. And so if you have erectile dysfunction, you have to rule out cardiovascular disease before anything else. I think one of the, the problems, though, is that especially with older men, they think, oh, well, it's just a part of getting older and you just have to live with it. But that isn't the case. No, it isn't the case at all. You know, the funny thing that, that there is a life cycle of the penis, you know, so as one gets older with hormonal changes, physical changes, the, the performance does get affected. So, um, yes, as you get older, things will change. But be that as it may, if you have erectile dysfunction where you really have difficulty getting or maintaining an erection, whether you're old or young, it still needs to be seen to. That's the other myth, that it only affects older men. Exactly. And it affects younger men a lot. And often with younger men, there's usually some kind of emotional, psychological or stress component related to it. But, you know, across the board, young or old, you've got to get it checked out. And if you go to your doctor, he should check out your cholesterol levels, should check out your blood pressure, um, look at your testosterone levels, and look at your glucose, because diabetes also, um, Karen, is linked to erectile dysfunction. And um, sometimes that also can be a sign of underlying diabetes developing. Um, and the other thing also is, you know, hormonal problems, where perhaps the testosterone levels are going down for whatever reason, and so that needs to be sorted out as well. And also if a man's recently had any kind of pelvic surgery, you know, maybe he's had prostate surgery, that can also affect the function of the penis, as well as medication. There are certain antidepressants on the market, certain antihypertensives, and other psychotropic drugs, which also have an effect on erectile performance. There's also things like um, neurological disorders, like Parkinson's disease or multiple sclerosis, those kinds of things, which could also yes. have an, e an effect on that. Absolutely, absolutely. Because if you think, 
in terms of how you know, an erection happens, that it's you know, a signal going from the brain to these organs and it travels along nerve signals. So absolutely, um, that's what happens. And, and there are many also chemicals involved, like, for example, um, the main one we know is cyclic, or it's called CGMP, and that's essential for actually creating the vasodilation. So, yeah, if your nerves aren't working properly, if your blood vessels aren't working properly, um, this whole sequence of events is not going to happen. Um, and the result is that you're going to land up with ED. Now, the problem with erectile dysfunction, other than the main problem, obviously, of there being a problem with erectile dysfunction, yes. is the fact that it does have psychological impact on the man, but it can also affect the family and relationships. I mean, it's a lot more than just the condition itself. Absolutely. Um, and especially, you know, with younger men, as you said, perhaps they've got, uh, you know, a fear of pregnancy or maybe uh, anxiety around performance or competition, uh, maybe... They've got a fear around STDs, um, or maybe they've had past negative experiences, or maybe there is relationship problems. So when uh, addressing this, a good doctor would look at the relationship, and often that's actually neglected. You know, sometimes they just focus on the physical, and there's actually a, a broader aspect. And, you know, with women, sometimes they take it upon themselves and think, oh, you know, there's something wrong with me, I'm not beautiful enough, or fit enough, or whatever. And really, women shouldn't go down that road. It's just about really supporting the man, encouraging him to, to get it sorted out. And then, if necessary, you know, go to a relationship counsellor or a sexologist and really look at what are the underlying issues in your relationship. Now, the good news is, though, that this, in most cases, I wouldn't say in all cases, but in yes. the majority of cases, treatment is available and people can actually be helped. Absolutely, and you can actually prevent it, you know, through, again, coming back to lifestyle, which I'm sure you've heard a mm. gazillion times on your program, you know. If you're overweight, you've got to lose weight because it's definitely higher in, in men who are overweight. Smoking is really bad for your sex life, so try as much as possible, cut it out, go for hypnosis, you know, deal with that. Alcohol, also, you know, you might feel sexy when you're having something to drink, but it doesn't do well for your sex life. So if you uh, are drinking too much uh, look at that. Also in bodybuilders, if they're taking anabolic steroids, that can also affect the function of the testicles and, and actually shrink them. So that's going to affect your hormone levels. Exercise, crucial, crucial, very important. And again, as I mentioned earlier, Karen, you've got to look at your stress and anxiety because as with many other illnesses, stress plays a huge, huge part in terms of your hormonal balance and then also in terms of your sexual performance. Also nutrition. The basic principles apply whether you've got ED or diabetes or high blood pressure. It's back to nature, wholesome foods, avoiding too much of your fatty fried processed foods and going back to really simple, nutritious, wholesome foods. Are there any herbs or spices or foods that could actually help here? Yes, there's many, many wonderful herbs and spices. There are a lot of funny enough, South American herbs which are very popular, things like matcha and chichuasi. They all have interesting names. Your himbi is also often used, tubulus terrestris. Many of these herbs have the effect of, firstly, improving testosterone, and also they cause vasodilation, which is exactly what you want. And the other thing is often they also improve libido, which and libido is not the same as ED. You know, that's more desire for, mm. for sex. And also another interesting supplement is L-arginine, it's an amino acid, and that is important in making something called nitric oxide, which helps your blood vessels dilate. So a lot of your supplements for ED contain L-arginine. There's also you know, things like J-1, 
ginseng is great, ginkgo biloba, which is a fabulous herb for your circulation, especially for your very fine, uh, smaller blood vessels. Um, things like horny goat weed is great. But I don't um, recommend men to take testosterone ad lib. No. You know, it's the kind of thing you need to look at. And then obviously on the conventional side, you know, you've got your very well-known um, PDE5 inhibitors like your Viagra, Levitra, and, and Cialis. But these medications have to be prescribed by a doctor. And they do have side effects. Um, they can't be taken with alcohol, and it's not for everyone. So a lot of times Viagra gets passed on between men like Smarties, you know, but it really needs to be taken more seriously and only used if you're the right candidate for it. It's like any other medication. You wouldn't go and just, the pharmacist shouldn't exactly. just give it to you, and certainly you wouldn't give it to your friend. Yes. If he had some sort of a problem, you wouldn't say, oh, here, take some of my antibiotics. I mean, you don't do exactly. that. Exactly. And it's the same and, thing. The, yeah. That's another thing about the herbal realm. You know, they've got wonderful historical uh, evidence in terms of the efficacy, and they're uh, available over the counter. They're usually a lot safer, much fewer side effects. Um, and they work pretty well. I mean, in terms of foods, uh, kind of wonderful, interesting uh, herbs and foods like saffron, for example, fenugreek, uh, ginger, cloves, nutmeg. Those are all fantastic for uh, for improving your sex life. But also things like oysters, which we know about, pumpkin seeds. Interesting things like salmon, dark chocolate. In my research, I've come across these things: avocado and peanuts. These are all good for um, improving your sex life and, and the testosterone levels. Well, this this dark chocolate thing is very interesting because I was doing an interview with some people about Alzheimer's and they yes. they gave me a list of foods that could help to stave off Alzheimer's. And my listeners were terribly excited because one of them was dark chocolate. And someone said, there's a reason I have to eat chocolate every day now. Oh, and so, absolutely. <laughs> I feel the same. I also get very excited when I see those things. But it has to be really good quality, like yes. 80%, you know, mm. but got amazing properties. One of the superfoods, cacao, is really one of those amazing superfoods. So we shouldn't, well, men, and we, we shouldn't if you're wanting to stave off Alzheimer's, but for the men as well, there's a good excuse yes. why you need to, but don't eat too much of it because then you'll have the overweight problem and exactly. then you'll have another problem. So yeah. in moderation. In moderation. In moderation. That's what everything. So the, basically what we're saying here, Julia, is that it's not a very comfortable condition. It's not something people find easy to talk about. But mm-hmm. there are things that, that in most cases can be done to help the man to get over this this time in his life, which is for him, I would imagine, very uncomfortable. And, you know, but it's not a lost cause in most cases. Absolutely. There is, it's completely treatable, completely reversible. There's a lot that one can do. Um, and the important thing is not to ignore it, deal with it, face it, get help. There's so much available out there, and it's completely treatable and curable. And if you can't take the medicines, there's also like penile injections, pumps. There's a lot of things that one can use. And the bottom line is that besides it being erectile dysfunction, it could be a warning sign for a lot of other health conditions. So please do not leave it. Go and have yourself checked out. Very, very important. Julia, thank you so much for joining us on the show this evening and giving us loads of really good information. Um, I hope to chat with you again soon in the future. Will be lovely, Karen. I was chatting there with Julia Criscoola. She's Lytha Farmer's pharmacist, and we were talking there about erectile dysfunction. And if you'd like more information, there's two websites you can have a look at. You can go to www.otcpharma.co.za, and that pharma is spelled P-H-A-R-M-A otcpharma.co.za or you can look at a website it's www.rockhardweekend.co.za
And that's it for Health Matters for this week. I'm Karen Key. Thanks for joining me. And I'll be back with you again tomorrow evening just after nine with time to travel. So join me then. But if you need any information about something you've heard on the show this evening or you've missed a contact number or a website address, you can email me on healthmatters at safm.co.za or take a look at the Facebook page Health Matters on SAFM.